0: Hi there. A quick note to say that we recorded this current podcast before the COVID-19 crisis started, at a time when access to food in the UK wasn't being affected by sickness or by staff shortages, impacts on the supply chain, by government guidance about staying at home or by bulk buying and scarcity of some essential items. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to our fifth full episode of the Circular Economy Playbook. A podcast which shares real-world stories on circular matters that are reshaping London and the world. My name is Ali Moore. I am from the London Waste and Recycling Board. And as ever, I'm here with our Chief Executive, Wayne Hubbard. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, this episode is about food, the stuff of life. Yes. So we've been talking about food, haven't we, for a yeah. while now and kind of mulling around the fact that it is actually quite a different kettle of fish Excuse the pun.
1: I was thinking about adding some context to the podcast, and in my head, I was thinking we need to add some flavor <laughs> to the. So, look, these puns will come and they'll be completely unconscious. I can guarantee that. Yeah, we haven't thought them through, but we've been talking about food for a while now, haven't we? And, yeah. um, and London, of course, is an Ellen MacArthur Foundation flagship city on food.
0: It is. It is. as part of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Food Initiative. Yeah, we're one of three flagship cities. Who are the other two? Sao Paulo and New York.
1: And we, we're we about to produce a business plan here at the London Waste and Recycling Board. By the time you listen to this podcast, it's highly likely that that business plan will be out in the public domain. And we're going to prioritise food. Food is a big, important thing. In fact... As we were discussing before we started recording, doing some research for this, it just reminded me what a, (laughs) it sounds crazy saying it out loud, but what an important thing food is. Food is the food of life. It literally is going to touch upon everything we do as human beings in terms of culture, politics, society, life, health, vitality, even the way we perceive each other I was saying to Ali before we started I was um reminded of studying Chaucer's prologue to the Canterbury Tales when I was doing my (laughs) a level was back in in Leicester yeah well I didn't get a massively good result for that but nevertheless the way that Chaucer talks about his characters and he uses food to talk about his characters and characterise them by the food that they eat so the summoner who's um a repulsive character he likes onion, garlic and red wine, which were considered to be repulsive things in Chaucerian England. Sounds
0: perilously close to xenophobic it, to me. Perilous, carry on.
1: Yes, but I'm just saying, so this is, you know, this is what Chaucer is using food to characterise people. The prioress is very careful with her food. She doesn't want to seem improper. She wants to seem virtuous. The Franklin, who enjoys life, um, keeps his house well stocked with fresh bread, meat and wine. You know, so the joy of food was akin to the joy of life and even today with the rise of veganism and i have to you know full disclosure here i am a vegan and i've been a vegetarian since uh 1990 vegans in some in some parts of our popular culture are maligned
0: mm.
1: so you I think know people that's, see them as
0: a threat well to their, and also to i think it's this this idea
1: of of restricting your food you know it's considered uh you know, somehow just pious and holy than thou. And that you can follow that line right through Chaucer and probably mm. beyond. Yeah, yeah. So food is important. It's a global issue as well as a local issue. It's political with a big P. We talk about food poverty, it's a health issue. And of course, for the purposes of our discussion, clearly has a massive yeah. impact,
0: mm.
1: one of the biggest impacts on global greenhouse gas emissions especially consumption-based emissions and those emissions that are almost uh, impossible, if not impossible, to mitigate by making the energy system more renewable.
0: Yeah. And it's um, fair to say that our focus on the whole is around food waste as an organisation. So a third of food is wasted globally, which is quite a shocking figure. Another figure that I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with is that if food waste were a country, it would be the third biggest producer of greenhouse gas emissions after, is it the States and China? I think the the first two, and then it's food waste. So it's a massive issue for us in terms of waste reduction and recycling in, in London, in the city. So any big stats from you, Wayne? Yes, um,
1: first thing to say is we're eating biscuits uh, yeah. in in celebration. <laughs> in yeah. of the, so um, some, That's some, the sound of a bourbon. a bourbon biscuit
0: being taken out of the packet.
1: Uh, so ah. I'm going to have that in a minute. Vegan. Well, they are vegan, famously vegan, Excellent. by the way. I wouldn't eat it, <laughs> would I? Well, I, I don't know. have just declared you know, to the world. I have exposed you. Um, to our <laughs> listeners that <"No>, I'm <laughs> vegan. So some big stats. Okay, so in uh, at the London Western Recycling Board... Um, we have a circular economy route map, and in that route map we identify five focus areas. And this is the focus areas we've chosen are very similar to other cities who have done this. Um, and that's not a coincidence, it's because they are big uh, priority areas for, for most cities. And uh, the focus areas are built environment, food, plastics, textiles, and electrical items. And um, we have done some research uh, from using studies carried out by the University of Leeds for Greater London Authority, um, which identifies the consumption-based emissions or estimated consumption-based emissions for those materials. Now, just a reminder, consumption-based emissions are are, are effectively the the carbon footprint of of stuff from extraction to production, uh, transport, use and disposal. So the whole carbon wake, if you like, that stuff leaves... Behind. And the biggest contributor, as far as London is concerned, and this may well be the same for other cities, I'm sure it is, is food. And it has an estimated number of consumption based emissions of 14.3 million tonnes. That's the single biggest uh, for any of those, including the built environment. So even the built environment is estimated to be 12.1, so fairly close. And those two are by far and away by a factor of three or four, the biggest single areas in terms of consumption-based emissions. But interestingly, from a waste perspective, the built environment, uh, we think, produces around about 9.5 million tonnes of waste a year in London, whereas food waste in London is much smaller, uh, at 1.7 million tonnes, presumably because it's lighter. We don't know what the volumes are. But has the biggest wake in terms of its contribution to climate change so food waste is really important in terms of the bin the household bin it's about yeah. a quarter of everything that ends up in your bin and after recycling if you don't have food waste it's getting on probably for about half maybe yeah. you know it's a significant contributor so reducing food waste and by reducing food waste reducing the consumption of food certainly some certain types of food will have a massive implication for reducing our consumption-based emissions.
0: Mm. So today we're going to be featuring two interviews that we have um, carried out with our firstly our chair, Dr Liz Goodwin-Obe, who is also um, a fellow of the World Resources Institute and a champion for the UN Sustainable Development Goal 12.3 around food loss and waste. And then we've also got a long interview with Carolyn Steele, the author of Hungry City and By the time this podcast goes out, I imagine her new book, Cytopia, will have been published. And she's a writer on cities and food systems and the way that we interact with food on a human and societal level. But yes, the first of two food episodes um, that we're recording, because it is such a big and complicated issue. So we thought we'd start in this episode with these two quite big picture interviews And we'll start with Liz, Liz Goodwin. She's going to give us a bit of a feel for the scale of the problem on a global level and talk about some of the issues along the supply chain around food, waste and loss.
2: I'm Liz Goodwin. I'm chair of London Waste and Recycling Board. um, But I'm also a champion for Sustainable Development Goal 12.3, which aims to halve global food waste by 2030. So let's start
0: by talking about that global food waste, and really like to get a sense from you about where is that global food waste happening, and how big is it?
2: Well, it's estimated that we waste around a third of the food that is uh, grown or produced, and that happens throughout the supply chain, but to different extents in different countries and in different environments. So, in the developed world, the big issue is household food waste. So it's us as householders we waste an awful lot of food. But in developing countries like Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the issue is far more about food loss. So it's, it's the food not getting from the farm to the, the retail or to the supermarket to then be bought. And that's a crime shame because that affects the farmers as well because they lose income because they haven't been able to harvest and transport their, their product to market. So
0: what are some of the reasons why they're not able to do that?
2: It's, it's um, a whole combination of things. Um, they are, they're in undeveloped countries, so there's very poor infrastructure, very poor roads, um, there's a lack of cold storage, a lack of local production and local processing. So they produce loads of mangoes and then they can't do anything with it and they can't cool it and they can't process it. So an awful lot of the mangoes then just go to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's some really basic things. And a lot of it is down to knowledge about what to do, knowledge about how to do things better as well as a requirement for investment in some of those key bits of infrastructure. So if we think about um, the projections that we're going to reach nearly 10 billion in population by 2050, if we continued with the current food system, that's going to put huge pressure on, on our agriculture system. We estimate that to feed that larger population, there'd be a food gap of around 56%. And to grow that additional amount of food it's been estimated that you'd need an area twice the size of India, in addition to what we currently use for agriculture, just to feed that population, let alone thinking about all the water implications and the greenhouse gas emissions. So the current food system just is not going to be able to feed 10 billion people. So we therefore need to come up with a whole basket of ways to change the food system. And one of the fundamental ones is to reduce the amount of demand, so get the supply chains more efficient make sure that we're all wasting less food. And then there are others, obviously, around um, making production more efficient so we get more out of each area of land that we use. And we also maybe need to change some of the things we grow and the ways in which we grow them. So there's a whole range of things that that we need to do, but we just fundamentally need to change the food system to feed 10 billion people.
0: It's interesting because we we come at this from a sort of circular economy perspective, but the, whenever I listen to people talk about um, the sort of the bigger global picture, it doesn't feel like it's really about a circular economy response. It feels like it's about some real basics like knowledge and education, like technology. I know in the fashion industry, it's about technology at the, further down the supply chain, about resource efficiency. So where might circular economy come into play then? So in terms of things like business ownership of you know the, the, the business, the big agribusinesses that are controlling the food supply chain, is there something... Like what's their role in it? where are the, Where are the big wastes happening once business starts to get involved?
2: Over years, we've managed to get very complicated, long supply chains, and we really need to rethink those supply chains to make them um, more responsive, that more holistic, um, shorter, less complicated, and improve the the communications up and down the supply chain. Some of the big issues come because there's poor communication up and down the supply chain. So a decision made by a retailer or somebody in one point in the supply chain has massive impacts elsewhere in the supply chain that they're completely unaware of. So by having that extra transparency, so data's got a role to play, but also extra communication, then you're going to be able to resolve some of that. And you see that with some of the work that some of the retailers like Tesco's have done, where they've gone down their supply chain for particular product types, identified where there are hotspots in food losses, And then they've taken targeted action to address those particular issues. Um, But that needs to be multiplied across all all crops, all all product lines and all retailers.
0: Absolutely. I was reading in that Caroline seal book, there's a story of Walmart doing a $2.67 one gallon pickle jar. Offer and uh, them flying off the shelves because of them being such a bargain, and nobody then actually eating all the pickles because nobody can eat a gallon jar of pickles before it goes off. And the people who produce the gallon jar of pickles having to expand very rapidly in order to meet the demand and pr- practically bankrupting themselves in the process.
2: Yes, crazy. Insanity. Insanity. Yeah, yeah. But there is a very circular argument here as well about if we can get the supply chains working better, then we will reduce demand which is fundamental to helping to reduce food waste. If you reduce the demand, then there's less pressure on the system. But it's also about helping us to feed a growing population because it's quite clear that if we're predicting nearly 10 10 billion people by 2050, we cannot operate with the food system as it is. Global agriculture, in the way it's run at the moment would then account for 70% of the permissible greenhouse gas emissions. Well, that's just not going to happen. Food cannot account for 70% of global greenhouse emissions. So we have to do something about that. And one of the key ways of tackling that and reducing the demand on the the food system, reducing the demand on land, is to actually cut food waste. So that that whole reducing food waste is is quite important from that perspective. But if you think back to what I said about more circularity, once you've actually got the food in the system and you you are inevitably going to have a bit of waste coming out of it, if you can then process that and produce a fertiliser, which you can then use back on the land, then you have essentially closed that loop.
0: So is that, do you think that's the really big win in terms of circularity around food? Is that kind of regenerative thing of getting the waste ploughed back into the land to keep the soil working
2: or is there it's a it's a win whether it's the biggest i'm i'm not sure it's certainly a win i mean it would be better not to have the food waste in the first place but you have to accept there's going to be some so you want to make sure that you keep those nutrients in the, in the cycle as much as you can
0: do you see are there any businesses doing a good job with kind of making use of their waste products along the way
2: um well, the fact I'm hesitating probably suggests there isn't, there aren't, aren't some classic examples. I think you're starting to see um, some of them being quite good at integrating back upstream. I don't think they've yet closed that loop and taken thought about what happens to the, um, the anaerobic digestion and the digestate that comes out of it. Mm.
0: That makes sense. What are your greatest fears around the food supply chain? for the coming five years, 10 years, 30 years?
2: Um, I'm reasonably optimistic about businesses. I think that we're seeing signs that businesses are recognising there is actually a business case. We know that the median company will make a 14 to 1 return on their investment if they invest in reducing food waste. So it's a pretty clear no-brainer for them to do something about this. So I think that businesses are beginning to think, more about how they can reduce food waste in their own operations and back upstream, which is all encouraging. And there are clearly a number of um, big retailers who are already reporting quite significant reductions in food waste. So I think there are signs, not enough yet, but there are signs that they're going in the right direction. My biggest concern is household food waste because I don't think there's enough action being taken by governments or by individuals for whatever reason, to tackle household food waste. And with a growing population and growing middle class, we're actually probably getting a worse problem because you see that as you get cities in developing countries, they are starting to get household food waste problem where they never had it in the past. When they were poor, they didn't have the household food waste problem.
0: And in terms of moments of hope, is there something on the horizon that you think is going to be transformative? Anything or just small things that give you reason to hope?
2: I am encouraged by the way in which some of the some of the businesses are are embracing this because they actually have quite a big role to play, more generally in probably in ways that I don't even understand, um, you know, because they are subliminally all the time encouraging us to buy products, and we may not understand exactly why and how that's happening. Um, but you know, the main reasons why we as householders waste food is because we buy too much, and then we don't use it in time, or we. Cook it and then don't use the leftovers. Why are we buying too much? There must be something that the retailers can do to stop us buying too much or to help us to reduce the desire to buy too much. So I think that's that's one side of, of, of hope. Um, and then I think that, you know, there is just some really, really passionate people out there and how they keep, you know, they keep going. I mean, I'd love to see a network across the world of, grassroots organisations who are all doing their bit because it's got to happen grassroots this is about individuals talking to each other and making it the norm not to waste food and that's only going to happen by one-to-one discussions between people
0: yeah if you were a policymaker, what would be the, the biggest most important bit of policy making that you think you could do
2: I would certainly recognise the role that food waste plays in tackling climate change and tackling the climate emergency because I think there is real momentum and energy getting behind the climate emergency. It's not enough, but there is momentum building there. So getting food waste in as part of your national commitments on climate change, because tackling food waste will reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, is really important. That's a that's a policy piece. Um, but then I think also every government ought to be measuring food food waste and ought to be Doing something in their country, whether it's mobilising grassroots organisations, running a campaign, working with retailers um, to, to tackle the issue. I don't think we can bury our heads in the sands any longer. I've been toying with the idea of how do you make it not normal to waste food? Because at the moment it's perfectly normal for somebody to eat half a burger and then throw the other half away. We have got to get to the point where that is seen as such a no-no that you just wouldn't do it. Because that piece of beef was so precious, um, an awful lot of effort and energy went into producing the beef, and so you you really shouldn't waste it. But that requires a change in shift a shift in social norms, and that's going to take a long time because that's about sort of building up the behaviour change, making the habit, not wasting it, and then over time the attitudes change and the social norm changes. So, who are the influencers that might help us to? make that transition you can think of all sorts you know social media Mm. the bloggers who are active in this space i mean i hate this whole instagram taking pictures of food but taking pictures of empty plates is not a bad idea um but then, then there are also going to be some like you know like religious leaders do they have a role to play does the pope have a role to play i think they probably do because they carry massive influence with vast tracts of society so I think some of those, those things, thinking about who are the influencers who are going to help us make that change. But fundamentally, under all of that, you've got to know how to do it and what the, what the tools and tips are, and that's where the retailers come in, helping us all you know giving us recipe ideas, telling us about portion sizes, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So that was a really interesting overview there from Liz of all the issues that they're looking at as part of the SDG 12.3, which she's, um, as I said, is a global champion of. We were talking, weren't we, about consumption and our behaviours around food changing in the light of shifts in society, in social mores, in economic circumstance.
1: Yeah, I mean, Liz makes the point that we need to change attitudes and it's, it's going to be hard. I mean, that's true, I think, absolutely. and it, it pervades all of our relationship with stuff. The thing about food, it seems to me, is it's so much more complicated than stuff in general. I, I was actually looking at the, the Mayor of London's food strategy and, you know, the Mayor has a definition of good food. Which is it should be healthy, nutritious food for all cultures and needs. It should be fair, inclusive, and accessible. It should be skilled and profitable, uh, skilled entrepreneurs. That means food should be planet-friendly and humane, sustainably produced, safe, and then finally celebrated. Which goes back to the kind of Chaucerian thing. Yeah. It is a nice, a nice summary there. And I think there are kind of three main legs to the food stool, the food milking stool shall we say <laughs> and that's there's a, a social justice an equity point here mm, absolutely. Food, food poverty is pervasive in some parts of london and many parts of the global south in fact eating the right kind of food is important so there's a health aspect here and then the amount of food that we either eat or waste so you need to kind of get the price of food right so that it's affordable and that it's good quality, mm. and that it's healthy,
0: mm. and if any
1: of those things are out of balance, yeah. then
0: the whole the whole,
1: the whole store falls all over. So you know, you think about, um, and we're, we're going to go on and listen to uh, Carolyn mm. talk about this. If food is so cheap that it's not correctly priced in 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 terms of its externalities and appears to be in a glut, then mm. Food isn't valued. Yeah. And so, you know, my parents, and I'm sure lots of uh, people of my, of my age, my tender years, would recognise this. My parents were born just after the war, the Second World War, and were born in a period where, where they were still rationing. So their attitude to food is you, shan't, you, sh- you shouldn't waste it, mm. which is great for um, periods of scarcity. But when you're in a, a period of, of glut, when there's plenty of food av- available, it can lead to obesity because yeah. you don't, you know, you kind of help yourself to everything. And then if anybody wastes it, you eat it. Mm. Now, I mean, so I'm just juxtaposing that with Liz's comment about the burger mm. and not wanting to waste food. That's, that has to be seen in the context of eating the right food and the right quantity. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, being more organised about it. In, in a situation where we have plenty of food, that's why we need to be more organised and conscious of the food that we buy, or the market or the government has to set the correct price signals. And those signals can't be set too high.
0: Because then that affects food access. And
1: if we're in a position where we have food scarcity, that's verging on and moving towards famine, which yeah. is catastrophic. Yeah. So this is
0: really complicated. It is. Lots and lots of moving parts in the world of food. And it's always been one that I've struggled with, in terms of the circular economy because with something like metals or plastics it's quite easy to see how you can create a circular economy out of some of those materials and even in the fashion industry which is quite complex it doesn't seem anything like as complex as the food industry
1: we've struggled here you know i struggle as the as the ceo thinking about what our messaging around food should be i kind of want us to concentrate on Messages around regenerative food, circular economy, sustainable food, those kinds of things. The the consumption-based emissions, but I recognise that consumption-based emissions and the associated carbon dioxide emissions associated with food are massively skewed because of the quantity of meat that we eat. But I don't feel it's necessarily albatross and organisations. We don't have a locus to talk mm. about diet that seems to be you know, something that resides within local authorities or the government or the mayor of London. And, and you know, so, for example, the London Food Board says food should be planet-friendly and humane, and that is promoting optimum standards of animal feeding practices, supporting farmers who raise livestock to demonstrably higher standards of environmental protection animal welfare, use of less but better quality meat, and the promotion of plant-based foods. And that mm. seems to be eminently sensible.
0: Absolutely but we always end up of course focusing on waste prevention and food waste recycling because those are our obviously our core mandate but as we've been saying it just doesn't seem possible to talk about those in isolation from all of those other social political moral health based issues which come with the whole food sector so in that context
1: are we going to turn up the heat
0: yeah why not Shall we go now to our interview with Carolyn? Yeah. So Carolyn is extremely interesting food writer. If any of you haven't read Hungry City, I recommend it thoroughly. And she's very passionate about food and the part that it should play in people's lives. So over to Carolyn from her perspective on things.
3: My name's Carolyn Steele and I am an architect by training, but I've veered sideways into food and... In 2008, um, I brought out a book called Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. And now I really work on this, precisely that, you know, the way in which food shapes our lives in, in ways that we in way that we are very conscious of, but also ways that we're not conscious of. And uh, I've invented this word, cytopia, which just means food place. And it's like a food-based alternative, uh, practical, doable uh, alternative to utopia. So we're all
0: about stuff Mm. here we talk about waste and resources and circular economy and recycling and all of those things and we're particularly interested in cities but yeah but broadly what's the what's the big picture out there what's going on with food and what what's causing the waste where is it
3: yes a lot of the problems come down to the fact that we live in cities in theory but actually in practice we don't so in practice, we, we still live in nature, but we just don't realise this. And we've set things up so that it appears that we, you know, cities are self-sufficient. So cities have never fed themselves. They co-evolved with a place called the countryside. Um, and I call this the urban paradox because the paradox is that we have dual needs as humans. We need each other. We're sociable. I mean, I quite often like to use Aristotle's term, political animals, So we're political, which means we need to be together, but we're animals, which means we need nature. And, you know, round about five and a half thousand years ago, we started experimenting with this way of living, which is basically um, that you gather together in ever greater concentrations. So five and a half thousand years ago is roughly when the first settled farming communities got big enough that archaeologists generally agree they deserve to be called cities. We'd been farming probably for about 7,000 years before that. So what you get in these very early cities is this evolution of a sort of dualistic landscape, as it were, a political, social, urban bit in the middle, and farmland that feeds it. Um, And actually, for most of history, the urban blobs, as it were, were fairly small. Um, And therefore, there was quite a close connection between the people living in the city and the land, there were notable exceptions. Rome was the most obvious, um, had about a million citizens by the first century AD. So that, interestingly, was the first instance, you might say, of a city outgrowing its productive hinterland, and therefore relying on what we would now, thanks to lovely Professor Tim Lang, call food miles, i.e. bringing the food in from hundreds, hundreds of miles away by sea, which is the only way you could do it in the ancient world. So... As I say, the urban paradox is that the more we gather together to be together, and as we know now we're living in a what is called the urban age, and more of us now live in cities than don't, and we have mega cities where you know tens of millions of people live, that's all great, but what it doesn't solve is the problem of where's all the stuff coming from that sustains us, and of course, food is the most obvious of all of those and since industrialization, this has completely exploded, so we now live in a situation where Instead of looking out of our window at the landscapes that feed us, you know, they're often thousands of miles away out of sight and out of mind. And another critical point to make is that also as a result of industrialisation, we've created this non-existent thing called cheap food, which is an oxymoron. So, you know, we've structured it that way. And we've done it by despoiling landscapes, reinstating slavery, uh, you know, destroying the planet, essentially. But because it's not visible to people, they don't know what's happening. And because it suits politics, so I'm giving you the entire (laughs) theory in one long stream, but that's what tends to happen because everything is, of course, connected through food. Because it suits politicians to have food be cheap because that's popular. Um, And of course, they can't admit that they've lost control of the food system. We have a situation where we're paying, you know, historically the the least that we have in history for food. I mean, it's actually gone up a little bit recently because the system's creaking. But, you know, two generations ago, people would have paid probably between 30 to 50 percent of their income on food. And now we pay, you know, less than 10. So that just shows you. And of course, when you say, when you think about what food is, food is living things that we kill in order to live. That gives you some idea of how weird it is that we've decided this thing should be cheap. It's the most important thing in our lives and the most precious, and we think of it as cheap. So there's a massive value schism going right down the middle of our society, an idea of what a good life is and all the rest of it. So it's a huge, huge, shall we say, food-shaped elephant in the room. But one that if we address it and recognise it, I think you know, profound change can come out of it. So that's the the upside. Yeah, I
1: think it's, it's uh, such a massive and important question, like the hidden cost of, of food production, and, and I mean, like, souls as a health, but also environmental impact and, and uh, externalities.
3: Well, I mean, again, there's so many levels you can take this at. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Patrick Holden, the Sustainable Food Trust, he's done this kind of true cost accounting mm. exercise and basically came up with. You know, we're paying twice for food, once actually what we pay in the shops and once for all the hidden externalities that we're not aware of, but they could be anything from, you know, pollution to water scarcity to, you know, soil depletion, deforestation and all the rest of it. And it's interesting that we've structured things this way, as it were. You know, culturally, if you look, again, historically, at the problem of how to feed ourselves, it's, it's, if you like, the most ancient practical problem. It's the problem all animals face, all living things face, in fact, because all living things have to eat. And humans evolved, you know, I mean, we evolved out of the shared problem of how to eat. And if you look at early human societies, i.e. pre-agricultural ones, food is really, it's it's everything. It's the means of exchange, it's what you get up in the morning in order to do, the shared meal is basically the economy, you know, so basically, you know, if I managed to kill a boar and all you did was kind of grab a few tubers, then I get a bigger share of the hunt, you know. So it's a very, very fascinatingly um, accurate economy. Of course, as we then evolved and moved into farming societies and then into cities, everything became a lot more hierarchical. And for the first time in history, you got this division between people who fed the, the community and those who did not. And from the beginning, it was high status in agrarian societies not to farm which is also interesting. So in a hunter-gatherer society, the best hunters get the biggest proportion of the food. So they are the, the most valued people in society. But weirdly, when it happens, you know, when we start farming, it flips on its head and you get the, the beginnings of, you know, something pretty much like slavery and then full-on slavery. So I find that quite interesting. So historically, it's been high status not to feed yourself in urban societies, and i mean again historically if you look at the way people in cities talking about people in the countryside they're called you know stupid or out of touch or bumpkins or whatever so we've got this very very deeply ingrained idea that it's cool not to feed yourself and not to think about food and of course what the industrial food system's done is it's made it possible for virtually all of us to have that kind of attitude you know, oh, I don't have time to cook. Of course not. I'm far too busy, twittering or tweeting. Sorry, <laughs> sorry I do tweet. So I don't know what it's called. But you know, I'm far too busy doing something else that we decide is more important. And I find that you know fascinating, shall I say? And I think it's a sort of um, you know, this desire to not have to think about food is is it's it's culturally kind of reinforced, and of course historically as well. You know, when there are traditional food cultures, it's very often, you know, the head of the household who's usually a man who also doesn't do the cooking or the shopping or the cleaning or anything else. So we also have this kind of interesting status division between the people who actually do the stuff and the people who don't. And again, I mean, I think this feeds into the whole kind of narrative about cheap food being fine. It's like, you know, well... Everyone, everyone, you know, it's almost like the new human right is that everybody has the right to eat food without thinking about it. Would You would imagine that was the case if you, as it were, switched on the television and saw, you know, the ads from the food industry or something. Um, and I mean, for me, Deliveroo is, and other sort of um, food delivery services like that are, I mean, I've, I feel like a kind of old Roman sage who used to mutter that, you know, the kind of, so-called Pastio Volatica, which was basically the luxury farming that used to happen around the city because all the real food was coming in from somewhere else. You know, I feel a bit like that with Deliveroo, I feel, because they used to say this was a sign of the city's decadence. Mm. And for me, Deliveroo is a sign of our ultimate decadence because, as we know, a lot of this food's cooked in dark kitchens. You know, it's it's kind of the people who deliver it are, you know, on zero hours and with very little protection, but, you know, we're just lying in our pyjamas at two in the morning going, oh, shall I have Thai or shall I have Indian or shall I have this or that? It's just deeply decadent to me because we don't value food and we don't understand where it comes from. And so, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of prejudices to break down in terms of getting people to value this thing that we, we've got used to taking for granted.
0: It feels to me as if what you're saying is, is that actually without a radical shift, in everybody's perception on understanding of food and the way that they value it, whether they are participating as eaters, mm. uh, preparers, mm. m- manufacturers, farmers, distributors, um, whatever their role is in that food chain. But unless we can do that kind of radical or revolutionary overhaul of their attitudes, the system's not going to change? Is there no tinkering? Or
3: are There's so many things do, we or? can do. There's so many things we can do. One of the things I'm proposing is the internalisation of the true cost of food. That's revolutionary. That's totally revolutionary. Because if you do that, for example, industrial livestock production is instantly totally unaffordable. Because it is unaffordable. Because look what it's doing to the planet, you know. So, of course, the devil's in the detail. How do you put a value on... Well, I mean, people have done this exercise. I mean, in in Raj Patel's wonderful book, um, Stuffed and Starved, he quoted... Um, A study that had been done by the Indian uh, Centre for Environment and Science, where they'd just looked at an ordinary hamburger that had come from meat uh, reared on land recently cleared of rainforest, and just chucked a few kind of quite conservative numbers at that and said, well, you know, that patty of meat ought to cost $200, you know, and not the $2 it costs, just because... How do you you value rainforest? How do you value climate climate you can live in without being blown off your feet or submerged in, you know, waves lapping at your neck, as we said earlier? Mm. So, you know, it's difficult. And, of course, it has to happen internationally. That's obvious. But, I mean, I think we have to have government intervention. It's the only way this is going to change. And, of course, we need bottom-up too. And, of course, every campaign group going, in a way, has been given a massive leg up now by... The Wonderful Greater Thunberg, uh, for example, in Extinction Rebellion, because it's actually becoming politically very difficult to ignore this stuff now. So, you know, I mean, people have been banging on about this stuff for at least 50 years. And finally, it's actually seeming very expedient for politicians to to take it seriously again. So that's all good. But yes, I mean, I think our economics are based on basically treating nature as if it was free. And again, this is really, really interesting because Adam Smith explicitly said that it was free, you know, because in his day in 1750, you know, it was inconceivable that humans could run out of stuff, land, but we are. So that changes everything. So I think we have to put a, a value on these things. And as I say, um, food immediately becomes extremely expensive if you do that, because it is, because it's, it's valuable. <laughs> So, in fact, expensive is the wrong word. It's just valuable. And my vision, such as it is, my Cytopian vision, is that um, a Cytopia, by the way, I should say, um, comes from the Greek word "sitos" for food and topos for place. So it's just a kind of... It, it's, it's really an expression of the fact that we live in a world that's shaped by food, but we live in a bad Cytopia because we don't value food. So a good Cytopia is one in which food is valued. Um, And and what's really interesting is if you look at societies in which food has been valued, there's plenty, well, there's infinite examples of them because they're basically anywhere, any pre-industrial society did that. And all of the stuff we need to do is there. It's all there, just ready and waiting like a blueprint. Mm -hmm. So they're all about circular economy. They're all about not wasting anything. They're all about, you know kind of synergies and symbioses and all the rest of it. And you can just look at the way a medieval city fed itself, you know, not Rome, obviously, but, but you know, a, a smaller scale one. And it's all there. I mean, our, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to come up with a conception of a good life that really is a good life, that people would get excited about living, that is also zero carbon. And that's quite an interesting task and i think food is the most powerful tool medium way of thinking that we've got for getting from where we are now to that place because if you value food again life slows down cities change landscapes change you know the, the economy changes the how i spend my day changes and to go back to this idea of this this idea of us being dualistic you know political animals needing nature and so on Food is just the most blindingly obvious way that we can reconnect with this thing that we're progressively excluding from our lives, which is nature. And that doesn't just mean green spaces, it also means being aligned to the seasons, being actually aligned to time. I think, critically, cities by which I mean sort of people living in them, need to re-engage and reconnect with what it means to to sustain life, actually. And of course, eating is the most primary thing that you have to do just to sustain your life but it's not the only one i mean we also need you know energy and minerals and so on um but of course food encapsulates all of those as well um so it is a cultural shift that i'm talking about um the other thing as i say is that uh you know i think most people if you if you genuinely said to them you know if you're going to eat a bacon sandwich would you like your pig to have lived in an animal gulag out space to turn around, you know, with a slatted floor and never seeing daylight? Or would you like it to have wandered around in a forest, brutaling and expressing its natural behaviours and then meeting its end at a certain point after a happy life? It'd be a very weird person who wouldn't say the latter. But, of course, that kind of pork costs, you know, what, three times, four times as much? My argument is that if you internalise the true cost of food then the industrial pork costs more. (laughs) So the economic choice is reversed because ethically, you know, organically raised food is the only kind of food that already embeds its true cost. That is the true cost of the food. Because there's no downsides to it because it's sustainable. So... And that's the plan. <laughs> but obviously, you know, it's a very brave government who's going to start saying, OK, everyone has to pay a lot more for food. Clearly, one of the major objections to this is, well, <gasps> but you know, then we're going to get another 10% of the population going below the breadline. To which my response is, why are we living in a society where 10% of the people are already below the breadline? You know, and we're the fifth largest economy in the world. So mm-hmm. don't don't make cheap food the excuse for keeping this extremely inequitable, unfair society we have, it's very, very clear, it's not just climate change, it's also the sixth mass extinction, which is already underway, drastic drops in insect numbers, drastic drops in bird life, all sorts of wildlife. We have to stop farming chemically. We can't that's what we can't afford to do, and that's why the whole question of what we should eat and how we should eat is actually more complicated than vegan or not vegan, frankly, because if we're going to farm organically, we need animals in the system because they're an essential part of the natural synergies that make, you know, mixed-use landscapes work. So if you look at all the literature on everything from permaculture to regenerative agriculture to, as you say, sort of carbon sequestration in the soil, animals are, are essential, just not very many of them. <laughs> you know, so I, Simon Fairley, the wonderful farmer and, uh, and journalist, Simon Fairley, has this brilliant term, he calls it default livestock. And default livestock of the livestock you can raise on the back of an otherwise plant-based system. And But interestingly, there's a heck of a lot of food that we currently waste, like crop residues and so on, that you could happily feed to cattle. But you need to go back to having a few cows on a mixed farm to do that. So, you know, so it's a completely different approach to, to farming. And it's highly, highly productive. Don't believe all the people who tell you that the only way we can feed ourselves is through big ag. It's just not true. In fact, I would say the reverse. I would say... The only way that demonstrably we can't feed ourselves in the future is through Big Ag, because look at what it's doing to the planet. So I can give you all the stats on that, but I mean, basically, if we reduce the amount of meat and dairy we eat by by about a half, and if we reduce food waste by about a half, then we can feed the world 80% organically without increasing the amount of farmland currently used. This is from a very, very... Big study done recently, you know, sort of headed up by ETH Zurich and so on. So, and that's a beginning point. And the the point they also make is that, you know, the yield gap between industrially produced crops, for example, at the moment, and organically produced is quite big in industrial countries, because all the research has gone into the industrial stuff. So they said they reckon that if you invested in the organic crops and organic sort of cropping systems... You could close that gap within 10 years. So then the 80% goes up to 100%. So it, it's the thing is, this is all complex stuff. It needs us to be smart and to be clever and to buy into it. I think from, um, from a waste perspective only, I think you know, if, you,
0: if you were to move to that kind of mixed farming method with very much reduced amount of livestock and the price of everything was to go up a bit um, and people therefore value the food that they were eating, then we might stop wasting that 30% of, you know, the total well, food produced. Well, people produce. only waste what they don't value.
3: Mm. So we waste food because we don't value it, because we've created this evil oxymoronic monster called cheap food that does not exist. Mm. This What we have to construct most critically is an understanding that there is a good life to be had, it doesn't involve throwing things away but actually involves the reverse. I mean I happen to be one of those people who enjoys mending things, you know. So if 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 there's a rip in my sock, I get the needle and thread out, you know, and it's hugely hugely satisfying to return this slightly damaged sock back to a totally usable sock. Yeah. I get great pleasure out of that. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as, you know, kind of opening your fridge and going, oops, that you know, that lettuce is looking a bit dodgy. Quick, make some soup or, you know, blitz it up into a puree or, mm. you know, do something, do something with it. Yeah. And it's a mentality. And, you know, I think another thing that we, as a great social ill at the moment is that we know that we're living bad lives You know, we know we're trashing the planet. We know we're making ourselves sick. And because it's so difficult to admit it, you get these these walls put up, actually. So I think just saying, look, it's okay to admit that that was not very good, but there's this wonderful way of life just over here. You just, you know, just have to step over this threshold. And it's all win-win. That's the great thing. It's win-win. Living a good life that's both ethically good as well as fun is all about caring it's all about love really Fine. yeah 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 the, the the classic utopian sort of setup is as what sort of i call the fried egg urban model so it's basically the uh, the yolk is the city and the white is the countryside so it's the city-state model and most cities in history were some kind of version of that one way or another um So to start off with, what you see there is that if you, and all of those utopians, by the way, who I just mentioned, their big idea was to keep the city small. So we are immediately talking about planning. Now, planning is quite an interesting discipline because it's socialist, inherently, Guess why the two leading neoliberal nations on the planet, i.e., America and the UK, have not had much planning going on lately? Because they believe that the market should decide what goes where. So we have to bring food back into our planning thinking. My interpretation of the ideal place for a human to live, if you think of us as political animals, is with one foot in the city and one foot in the countryside. And again, if you look historically at what rich people have done, that's exactly what they've had. They've they've had a place in town and a place in the country, you know. So for me, trying to replicate this, but for everyone, in a way, is a goal. And one of the things, that one of the formulations I've come up with is I call it maximising the urban-rural interface, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what it really means is that it doesn't have to be a fried egg. You know, it can be scrambled egg, actually, you know, or it can be no egg at all. But but just <laughs> sort of, um, for example, Patrick Geddes, you know, who invented regional planning, um, you know, he said the thing to do was to preserve strips of countryside radiating out from the centre mm-hmm. so the city would evolve in a kind of star shape. So you got these, you know, think, you know, imagine a starfish and draw your you know, finger around its legs, that's a lot of urban-rural interface, which is a lovely place to live, you know, because I can just nip into the city for work, and then I can just nip into the countryside to my allotment in the evening or something. So that's the planning thing. And it can happen at any scale, by the way. So, for example, I've started growing cucumbers, rather large Danish pickling cucumbers, on the roof on the way up to my flat in London, where I just happen to have a tiny bit of space in the south-facing wall, and they just... They they go bananas there to use an inappropriate um, <laughs> <laughs> phrase. They go they go Danish pickling cucumbers up it <laughs> up the wall, which is fantastic. So you know, it can happen at any scale. This thing, and then of course you. I mean, we have a food system at the moment which is predicated on you know f- food logistics, you know, on steroids. So basically. You maximize what is called an efficiency, which is actually just means you're trashing something usually. You know, whether it's the Amazon or whether it's kind of the steps that used to be grasslands or whatever that have been given over to monocultural production. Um and then you you manipulate the food so that you get it to the city just in time and all of this stuff. We know the whole way it works. Now that has to be dismantled. And it's going to be very difficult to dismantle it because You know, the whole city depends on it at the moment, so this has to be incremental. But it seems to me that the first, most obvious things to do are to re-establish alternative networks, and I guess that's what the food movement effectively does. You know, that's what organic box schemes are, that's what CSAs are, community-supported agriculture. And there's wonderful examples, for instance, in Brooklyn, in New York, you know, 40, 50 years ago, there were a couple of hippies who didn't like the way industrial farming was going in the US. And they started up a thing called the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is basically just the idea that they and their group of friends got together and they went out into the countryside, met farmers and said, we want to buy your food, please. You know, can we do a deal? And they just did a direct deal. And this thing is now, as I say, it's it's been going for nearly 50 years now. It's got about 40,000 members Um, They have long term contracts with farmers, you know, within 100 miles of the city, which in America is just like literally next door. Um, And and they meet regularly and they say, are we going to work? You know, they have ethical discussions about what food they're going to have and not have and so on. So I think that's a fantastic model. Um, I mean, obviously, eventually what we need is the food industry to be either coerced by its... By its customers who demand that they behave differently, or by governments who force them to to go to much more ethical and sustainable delivery systems, most people I meet who work in food, they don't want to be doing the wrong thing; they're just basically forced into it by this relentless race to the bottom, you know, so I think if we if we can as it were have a cultural revolution also sponsored by government that says we're going to we're no longer going to externalise the cost of the really damaging food then that will give the food industry the leg up that it needs. But, I mean, I think, in general, it's a much more... We need a democratisation of the food system. And I normally sort of have lots of diagrams and stuff, but, I mean, if you look at the existing food system, it looks like a kind of tree with lots of, you know, producer roots and lots of consumer branches, and then this trunk, which is basically the supermarkets that that control 95% of that relationship if you just imagine joining the roots to the branches, you know, which is what the food movement does, then the trunk is still there, but it gets weaker. It's no longer monopolistic. And that's quite interesting. You know, so I think it's a way of incrementally changing the system. Mm. You know, and I think in order to deal with, because my vision is absolutely that we're going to have to have many more people in farming. I think we have to to go back to regenerative farming and agroecology and so on, we need far more people working in, in farming and every aspect of food, in fact, which will be fine because we're going to be paying more for food anyway, so they'll earn good livings, it's great. But then you have to have more filigree delivery systems as well. And also the thing about ecological farming is there is no one-size-fits-all. You, know, you can't just sort of spray stuff on the ground and have it work. You, you need to apply intelligence and thought and a care again, but, I mean, that's what I think we yearn for in life. And there's lots of people I know, I, I've met them, you know, who really want to work in food, but they can't get any land. You know, they can't earn enough money, but they really want to work in food. So I think there's a massive, massive opportunity there. And also more engagement. I think local food hubs where you could you can go and pick up deliveries, for example, from from local farmers. Not everybody's in all day and can time to be delivered or um you know you can go and work in a community garden or a kitchen or something like that i think there'd be a lot of take up for that you know a lot more than is necessarily apparent especially as we shift as i say from a crazy frenetic 24/7 carbonized lives to a kind of steadier calmer more men-your-soxy sort of world <laughs> But, but, I mean, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm going a bit going <laughs> a bit carried away, but I mean, you know, of course, technology is. We're not going to suddenly go back to to 1300 again. We have technology too, and that's what's really exciting. We can go back to the old models, but we can make technology work for us too, mm. and it's all there to be done. It's and, and I think some pilot schemes that had some actual funding you know, to simulate what this would be like, to show people what, you know, a world where food becomes central again would be like, could could really kickstart it. By the way, another great project I'm very excited about, Almera, which is the biggest, the fastest growing city in the Netherlands, just east of Amsterdam. They've got this great master plan by Dutch architects called MVRDV. And basically... You get a house, but you have to have a farm as well. You have to have farmland as well, and really interesting stuff's happening there. It's hugely popular. That's people a small are holding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people are growing their own stuff, and some go, "Well, I actually don't really want to grow stuff." So they're then sort of trying to find anyone a farmer who will come and farm it for them. But the land has to be productive. That's the idea behind the master plan: is to incorporate food production in the city. So that's really interesting how that's developing. And apparently people are very, very happy living there. So this is what I call a landscape for human flourishing. You know, and as I say, we need space and we need activity, meaningful activity, and we need social connection. And I think if we started thinking about our cities in that kind of way, through food, our combined need to eat every day, of course, I'm not saying everyone should go back to having a small holding, but I'm saying that engagement in the business of feeding yourself at any level, if it's treated right and if we value it culturally, is actually the heart of a good life. Last week, we recorded a debate between two people about
0: retrofit versus um, rebuild. And, uh, and at one point in the conversation, Jilly um, from BRE looked out the window and went, well, look at all these roads out here. Mm. Like, in the future, we're not going to need these roads. Mm. There won't be any cars. Mm. And we won't have any need for the roads and the pavements. So what will those spaces Mm. become? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What can we do with those? And I just had this little moment.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I presume you've heard of the com- co- Seapools, Bern and Viljean's Project Seapools. So so the, right. the, the the London-based architects, Andre Viljean and Catherine Burn, Bern and Viljean, uh, my pronunciation might be a little off, but it's roughly like that. They have this idea, about 10 years old now, of what they call Seapools, continuous productive urban landscapes. And that is precisely that. It's saying reoccupy the verges and the car parks and you know basically all the vacant tarmac space dig it up and grow stuff and uh, guerrilla gardening precisely but also the idea that again it's like the Patrick Geddes star-shaped thing but kind of post-fitted into the city that you deliberately try to hence the continuous you deliberately try to link all of these spaces up so you get a sort of ribbon of countryside going out from the centre actually into real countryside as it were which I think is a great idea. I mean, Engaging I'm a, I'm a designer, I'm an architect, so, of course, I'm always looking and saying, you know, you have to make space, you have to make this stuff easy for people and you have to create beautiful spaces that they want to go and be in. And, of course, nature creates beautiful spaces without trying, you know, just chuck plants on the ground and, you know, let them grow and suddenly people people come. So I think there's huge amounts we can do in design. You know, but it's, it's at every level. There's there's no part of society that this leaves out. You know, I think, you know, a food revolution, effectively, simply by saying, you know, the one thing that we are always going to have to consume every day is food. So even as we dial down the kind of the consumerist culture, food remains this wonderful, joyous thing that can bring us together if we value it. Exactly. And with value comes a reduction in waste, which is where we... Yeah, Um, value and waste are the opposite sides of the same seesaw. Of course they are.
0: So that was Carolyn Steele, whose new book, Zootopia, is out this month. Keep an eye out for it. She's a a really excellent writer uh, with lots of passion and insight into food and why it should be important to us all. So, yeah, interesting to get that really big picture before in the next episode we dive into some more tangible city-based examples of waste prevention and recycling and what were your thoughts on it
1: it's really interesting i mean this is a fundamental problem for us in london and again we're not really focusing here on waste as it happens we're focusing here on systems food systems and the circular economy is all about systems and some Some people may have seen the butterfly diagram and thought, oh, there's loads of information on the technical side, all these loops. But on the biological side, it seems kind of, what's it saying? Uh, but, But for me, maybe the butterfly isn't sophisticated enough to really describe the complexity of the food system, all of the supply chains, all of the losses that Liz talked about, actually, through the supply, the potential losses. If you don't have refrigeration you can't eat certain things i mean it's important to think that at the beginning of the 19th century almost all food was still produced locally it was the introduction of refrigeration that allowed us to eat meat
2: Mm.
1: britain's first large-scale meat canning factory was set up only in 1865 Wow! so yeah by 1870 every middle class kitchen had a tin opener but before then no one knew what a tin was so no one had a tin opener Yes. The railways opened up distribution. Yeah, uh, ice. You know how was ice? Ice was a real commodity
0: mm.
1: because without electrical refrigeration, you had to have a significant kind of insulated storage to mm. manage to store ice successfully. Mm. Maybe it was even imported from <laughs> frozen water. Literally, you know. Yeah. So, so
0: yeah, dragged behind a yeah. ship in a big block.
1: Almost incomprehensible now the relationship. Yeah between what we eat and uh, and how it's produced clearly symbiotic uh, interestingly um i was looking at um i mean I, I do find this interesting i'm a bit of a bore on this but I, the the dietary habits of the uk over time mm. and as a kid i remember being fed liver every week
0: yeah liver i, I had brains <laughs> My like, heart, on uh, a regular basis.
1: Yeah, my, my grandparents would eat it Reveiling all the, all the time.
0: There. But
1: liver is one of the things that we rarely eat now. Yeah. It was very popular in 1974. Not so popular now.
0: Um, just as an aside on liver, my husband's youngest brother used to ask for liver for his birthday dinner.
1: That's, that's, that's taken my breath away. <laughs> that's really, God, I just hate liver. Anyway, the politics of this, right? So... Carolyn talks about two generations ago, 30 to 50% of income represented what you would, you know, what the cost of food was and now it's less than 10%. So um, we, we, we've talked about the, the just transition to a low carbon circular economy. And, um, you know, there, there's even, I think some disagreement amongst historians about the level of malnutrition at the start of the turn of the 20th century. So, Um, Just looking on um, British, the British Library website has this. It says, at the beginning of the century, the English population ate very poorly. In 1917, when two and a half million men from across the social spectrum were given medical examinations, over 40% of them were found to be unfit for military service, mainly due to malnutrition.
0: Wow. Right? Astonishing. I didn't know that. That is really, really astounding.
1: However, University of Sussex scholars Gaisley and Neville clearly wanting to challenge this. Common assumptions say, taken together with the findings presented here on diets, it would suggest that in 1900, Britain was on the cusp of having a working population where very nearly all households had a diet that provided sufficient energy for sustained work. So they're challenging that, Mally. They're saying people just about had enough to eat. (laughs) I think they're probably saying the same thing. No one's... you know, not many people starved, yeah. but clearly diets but they were, were very poor. just
0: surviving. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, they?
1: very poor. You know, we didn't even eat chicken.
0: Yeah, when did we start eating chicken then? 1953.
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, that. exactly. Apparently, according to information provided that I saw, that um, that provided, provide actually, you can look it up on the website. But 1953 was the introduction of the first broiler house for producing chicken as meat. Whereas yeah. previously chicken were primarily kept to produce eggs yeah. in this country.
0: Very sensibly.
1: It's very sensibly. So, you know, it goes to show that um, our relationship with food changes according to technology, according to fashion, according to the growth of cities and according to transportation, refrigeration. So we're able to import stuff from halfway around the world and, and still keep it fresh, which is a good thing mm. and a bad thing. Mm. Um Surely uh, we can use the circular economy or circular economy principles to reimagine our cities and think how they could become more food self-sufficient. Mm. So what does Carolyn talk about?
0: Yeah, she'd say I love that that whole idea that Carolyn talks about, the, the starfish, this idea of there being kind of ladders, if you like, coming out, radiating out from the centre of a large city in which food is grown and it, uh, where city butts up with countryside um just creates more surface for us to connect along you know the urban and the rural interface i love that idea as well that in the last episode in the construction episode that we did with jilly from bre where she talks about the fact that you know when when we no longer need cars on our streets what will we use streets for and that we could grow food there i love that idea
1: well just i mean any large sprawling metropolis. Especially in North America, but also in uh, in Northern Europe, the amount of land that's given over to mm. to road. Mm. I'm sure if we looked in the London plan, it would it would probably tell us. Yeah. But it, it's going to be significant. Yeah, we know that. Just yes. looking out the window. So if that wasn't needed for that purpose,
0: yeah,
1: uh, because we
0: could reclaim it. Yeah,
1: because we had shared. It, it, if we didn't need parking spaces. Yeah. You know, because we had autonomous transportation and whatever it was, we could reclaim that. And then yeah. you could imagine swathes of that being given over to some form of locally yeah. grown food production.
0: Yeah. And what that creates is, is, you know, when you, as Carolyn talks about repeatedly, is that proximity. When you shorten that supply chain, when you create that proximity of people living in a city with the food that they're eating and with seeing the way it's growing and participating in its growing even if only for a, for a small percentage of the food that they actually eat it it could genuinely change the relationship that we all have with
2: food
1: so I mean, in between it just seems to me that these are big ideas these are retrofitting in, into existing infrastructure yeah. is going to be long term and complex yeah. and so we are left kind of thinking, right, okay, so we need to try and inculcate the correct um, attitudes and practices in our population mm. and in our in our public sector and in our private sector in order to minimise food waste and minimise the effect that food consumption habits have on climate change, mm. which is primarily one of behaviour change, either yeah. voluntarily or through price signals to the market. Yeah, That's where we are, it seems to me, at the moment. Yeah. So we have food strategies we have our trifocal campaign we have behavioral change campaigns we provide home composting bins Mm. we introduce anaerobic digestion and food waste collections which are at the end of the chain but we really need to also think about those uh changes in behavior that will help to promote both healthy eating and not overshoot the Mm. planetary boundaries Mm. uh, you know by eating too much carbon unfriendly food
0: Exactly.
1: And those are the price signals we need to send. Yeah. So I don't think personally that food is um, is too cheap. I think certain foods are, are too cheap. Yeah. And Carolyn is absolutely right. Those yeah. externalities, we pay twice. Yeah, But maybe it's, you know, we're paying once and our children are going to pay once. Yeah, Which is exactly. even, even more it's frightening for me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So the next episode then is also on food and we'll be exploring some of those innovators in London who... Are starting to do something about certain aspects of our current food situation.
1: Are we going to be looking at circular economy pioneers?
0: We are indeed going to be looking at one or two circular economy pioneers. Yes. How exciting! I know, I know, can't wait! Brilliant. So, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a like on your favorite podcast platform, share it with your friends. Um, and you can follow us at LWARB on Twitter and at the London Waste and Recycling Board on LinkedIn uh, where we'll keep you updated on future episodes. Thanks for listening.